Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. In this episode, you'll hear part one of my conversation with Adam Bush, co-founder and provost of College Inbound. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. Today we have Adam Bush joining us. Adam, very nice to have you here today. Um, Good to be here with you, Jeff. Thanks for bringing me along. Adam, uh, I think that we we have known each other for a long time now because we both are from the little state but mighty state of Rhode Island. Um, when we started education many years ago, um, we met your partner in crime, one of my absolute favorite idol, one of the favorite people in the world, Dennis Litke, who um, was is just this amazing educator, had... Um, done amazing work in the K-12 space, started one of the most successful high school, um, sort of uh, alternative high school, but really it's, a, it's, it's sort of this really amazing, fit, fit this amazing gap of high school called the Big Picture um, uh, Company, Big Picture Network, that has now over, I want to say over 100 schools all around the world. Is that right? Yeah, it's, Big Picture Learning is the name of the national network. It's mm -hmm. the Met School in Providence. That's There's right. mm -hmm. over 70 in the country and another 70 worldwide. That's unbelievable. And and when I yeah. learned about that and I just thought, wait a minute, there's this amazing sort of national treasure right in my backyard in Rhode Island in Providence. And uh, that, that was always amazing. And I, I got to learn so much from him. And I know... Um, after he had gotten such a successful school started, he then decided, why not start a college as well? And when was that, Adam? Do you know what year? Uh, so let's see, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, you and I started meeting in about 2008, I think it must have been. Mm -hmm. uh, the planning for College Unbound really was like 2006 onward. And Dennis and I really met in like 2004 um and you're right he's like a brilliant crazy scientist of like how do all these things work together and why can't you imagine this thing that doesn't exist right now and um you know at that time in like around the great recession um you know people still didn't think higher ed was broken it was just of course there's the skills gap. That's why people can't get jobs. And of course, we just need more access to higher ed. Well, there's not a necessarily a skills gap. There's the economy collapsed and people are out of work. And higher ed is perpetuating all of these inequities that have been there since the beginning of it. And we were sort of arguing for this intense shakeup of there being different models, options that aren't just about access, but are about uh, thinking about higher ed differently and taking seriously the trauma that past experience of higher ed have caused folks. Uh, but you were there at the beginning. Um, and in 2008, nine, uh, before we admitted our first students, we built our whole admissions process through Digication, really seeing an e-portfolio as the hub that we, we needed for someone who was applying to a funky college to put their whole funky selves out there. Uh, that a traditional application process wouldn't allow that to happen. 
that reminds me of how funky it really was. It was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was I, I'm so happy to have been part of this journey with you. Um, the, I remember there was the idea of taking a bus around the country to get people because, you know, otherwise they may not be able to get to Providence. Um, I remember there were, you know, the idea of where this college was going to be physically. Um, and uh, there's so much brilliance and funkiness in all of this. that I think we need to unpack that for people. Um, because I think <clears throat> for people thinking about, oh, you're starting a new college. Like, what does that mean? Right. And there's all kinds of colleges and schools people do today. Right. There's boot camps. There's for profits, yeah. you know, stuff. You are of a very special breed. Um, you want to talk about the sort of the format and 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 like and all of that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll. I'm happy to get to the story of what are we now, but you raised a lot of things about what were we at the very start. Um, you said the idea of the bus trip. I mean, so I had a bus driver's license at the time. And so, of course, we wanted to put that to good use. And our original idea of the college really grew out of, like, you know, the, the numbers in 2008 were saying 89% uh, of first-generation low-income students who started college didn't finish. Uh, and we thought with some care, some spit and polish and scotch tape and uh, a different kind of curriculum that we could switch that. Uh, and certainly be at least an 89% graduation rate. Um, with the time we were working and, and saw the college we were building as one for traditionally aged students, so 18 to 22 year olds. So that bus trip was with 18 year olds straight out of high school. Um, really, we, we uh, recruited folks from the big picture network around the country and flew everyone to Los Angeles uh, where they spent their first night of college in my parents' living room on the floor. And <laughs> Uh, we uh, we loaded up the school bus and hit the road to do an oral history tour of every student's hometown. The idea of if we were showing up together in Providence to build a different kind of college, we need to know where we came from, what we cared about, and what was going to drive us all to do that work. And I stand by that idea. I think it's like awesome and beautiful and funky in all these ways and purposely messy and also um it it was a wonderful disaster you know uh 18 year olds now when i look back on it of course want a chance to reinvent themselves when they show up for college like that's a part of the moving into the dorm thing and really instead what we made everyone do was take us to their homes and show us where they're from and meet their families and all these things that you want to do with your college friends eventually, but you may not want to do with your college friends on day one or day zero before you've had a chance to get to know one another. Um, so everyone's first assignment was designing that, that tour with me. And so it was around community gardens in Los Angeles and historic preservation in Sacramento and gentrification in Seattle. And so themes that each student was interested in continuing college were the things that um, influenced how they, the lens that they wanted to use to introduce us to their city and to their favorite restaurants and to their parents and their buddies and everything like that. The first uh, thing they read for college was the autobiography of Grace Lee Boggs, Living for Change who's an amazing Chinese-American activist uh, who lived in Detroit um, and had done labor organizing, uh, 
had done amazing youth work, community garden work. Uh, all, really, all the things that the students were doing individually came together through the work of Grace Lee Boggs in Detroit. And so then we also moved into her carriage house and spent a week <laughs> sleeping on her floor and touring the city through her eyes and lens and the history of her work. The idea of looking for models of what it looked like when folks came together from different backgrounds, working across difference with a collective vision of what the world could or should be. And that that was what we want. That was the energy we wanted to show up in Providence with. And um, so we showed up. We had rented a three-story, three-family home that everyone to move into. And college students in some ways still wanted to be college students. So even though we had the vision of we were going to do this great, funky college, these folks still wanted to ditch class occasionally, still wanted access to a college campus, still wanted to feel like a traditional college student, even if this was a college that was going to let them do different work. And so there's always sort of that tension early on with our, with our students in that first class. And um, as we were navigating that, adults started seeking us out, saying, oh, this, this different kind of college that's built around internships or community-based learning, that's what I want and need. And I'm having a hard time fitting into the community college or other uh, universities that say they're adult serving. And so we slowly began to learn with folks as they were coming to us and slowly started to pivot who our student body was. Um, and it was at the end of only like our second year. We put out, it wasn't even like a Facebook ad or anything. It was just a post that said like, have you started college and not finished? Come on Tuesday, there'll be pizza. And 78 people showed up. And it like that for us was this about face of, oh, that that's who this college needs to be for. It, it doesn't need to be square peg round hole. It really needs to be like there's adults who have started and not finished their degree who need a different way to move through their degree that responds to what their needs are in the moment. A college that's urgent uh, and learns in the urgent moments of people's lives. So that's really what we've grown into. And it was it was very it very quickly happened, um, but I have lots of we learned a lot through that first cohort, uh, and so wonderfully that was our excuse to work with you in education. You know, it's great that uh, I mean you you are someone I mean knowing having known you for so so long, this constant thirst and hunger for learning and sort of iterating is 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 always the case. And, and it's, it's what's so infectious, you know, for me as well, you know, you've inspired us to, to always learn about, you know, you know, new things and new ways of doing things and doing things in a, in entirely out of the box kind of way. Um, and one of the things though that has not changed has always remained consistent, which I really admire, is that you place the lives of the learners as being an integral and critical part of the learning experience, where we could imagine in many more traditional college environments, it's oftentimes the content, the major, um, you know, the, you know, you know, the, the uh, what's in the textbook, um, what's in the quizzes, uh, what's in the lectures that, that, that takes up, sucks up most of the air in the room. Um, maybe sometimes there's some space for other things. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to say that all schools don't. You know, don't do that. Uh, in fact, some do do well as well. But yours is almost like uh, that's to me has always been this consistent 180 degree 
turn from a more traditional college experience. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, institutions don't change unless they have to. Like they've been institutionalized and set in their ways. I think one thing overarching is we're trying to figure out how do we institutionalize an ethic of improvisation, of responding to students in real time, like you're saying. Um, But really, especially as we start to work with adult learners, um, it's about honoring the learning that people do in daily life. And that's one of the that's one of the grounding ethics of our school. It's really as an asset based uh, institution, recognizing all the pieces of someone that they bring into a space or that they don't know they can bring into a space. And so you have to have a relationship that allows that uh, allows that to happen. But, you know, we're we're engaged in learning all the time, casually, informally and, and formally through courses and curriculum adults are balancing so much in their lives a school that only says learning for credit happens here in this way that only happens when you pay us for it is just turned off to really what the world is like it's the responsibility of the school to be an advocate for learning if you're centering that if you're not centering your i don't know what i'm saying it's like if you have a model that's built around paying tuition for classes and that's the validation and that's how you get the stamp of approval that leads to the degree you're limiting not just who your student body is but you're you're limiting what it means to be engaged in the world and if you're centering social justice and equity in that curriculum and in that institutional design then you need to be a school that's an advocate for learning that's pushing both to honor the learning that's happening but also seeing yourself as a as a way to bring folks together to create new possibilities for that world. I, I talked about imagination and Grace Lee Boggs. That, that's certainly at the heart of what we're doing. It, it's about imagining new ways of coming together and, and valuing that learning when it happens. Yeah, I, I love that because you're tied with by a, a list of incredibly solid sort of core values that you share. And it's not about so much the content because I think that one of, one of the important things that I've, really valued in education early on is is that the content changes over time and it changes quickly these days i mean in my field in 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 technology oh man you know things change so quickly but it's the values that you develop and the ethics that you develop and all of that that drives um, how you solve these problems you know moving forward and and even have the intention and the drive to ask questions because if you don't ask the questions of equity, like you, you just said, then the work that you do means a lot less uh, because someone just gave you the questions and you just have to answer it, right? Um, but when you are, you know, always being challenged to, to, to make those, um, uh, to, to, to make those, uh, uh, to, to find, to find some, uh, some truth that you're seeking based on some values, it, it, it changes, you know, the way you do it. Um, so I wanted to have you address the, the skeptics, the ones that said, how can you do this really messy thing? Um, how could you possibly get accredited as a proper college? Um, and I think that we, we should, we, I should congratulate you first of all, that you are, um, you just got accredited. Um, and, uh, it's a long time you've worked at it 
it's hard it's a long journey but tell us about that you got accredited and how did you do it i mean to me the the idea of starting a school and get it accredited not under the umbrella of some massive college system where i can just say here's another another branch or here's another campus this is from scratch like you said from your your parents living room you know all the way to getting a credit how do you do that yeah um i i don't know and even though accreditation <laughs> makes it feel very stable uh we're still figuring things out as we go so i'll start with that um you know early on there was a fork in the road of are we centering the learning or are we centering the institution building and in some way, we made a decision to work to become an accredited college because the students we wanted to work with needed that degree, needed an accredited degree in order for that to have impact. There's a very, there's another kind of universe of, of us that is a, I don't care about the degree. I care about bringing people together, degree or not, and valuing the learning and let's embed it in all these sites that are already, ha and so it's not that they're mutually exclusive, but they sort of go off in different points. What we're excited to do now that we are accredited is to circle back to this point and to think about now with this accredited degree, how are we embedded in public libraries? How are we uh, in community centers and city halls and public housing and public parks and sites where people are gathering? And how can we use the stamp of approval of the accreditation to value that learning in different ways? So that that's that's sort of the larger path that we're trying to do. Um, you know, I told the story of starting with 18-year-olds. At that point, we were, a, we were a nonprofit program seeking to embed a curriculum within already accredited colleges and universities. And that was the theory of change. We're going to have a consortium of 25 colleges, and we're going to get them to sign on to this value statement and match students with the site, and we're just going to be like an instigator, subversive change agent. And I believe in that. I believe in partnerships at the heart of change. And also, it is exhausting and disempowering if you're in a partnership where you don't have a seat at the table and there's that saying of like if you're not at the table then maybe you're what's for dinner like we were the thing that was cut out of budgets we were the thing that was pushed aside when we weren't a priority for that institution so working to become our own institution was about having a sense of control of what our curriculum needs to be about what our institutional ethic needed to be in working and supporting adult learners as we as we were in a lot of ways, what we're doing is just what people call high impact practices for undergraduates. Like I see you, Jeff, annually at the AAC and U meetings, and you're like the head guy leading the ePortfolio workshop. The other main thing that gets talked about throughout those conferences is high impact practices, which is like cohort stuff, uh, study abroad, um, project based learning, uh, small classes, invasive advising, blah, blah, blah. There's a larger list. I don't mean blah, 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 like it's cat, but it's like awesome and great that these things are happening. Let's push all universities to do them. And basically the, the like pretty formal conservative way to look at what we did is we took all those things and we put it into the starting points of building a college for adult learners. And if you do that, and if you see it like that, it, it makes complete sense. Of course, we can move through accreditation. We're building a college with those things at its heart. And I don't want the student experience to be – I don't want the student to feel it as like, oh, this is a traditional college with just these things added on. I want the student experience of navigating a college to be as funky and natural as 
one that really just reflects the learning that they're a part of regularly in their daily practice. And the school is an advocate for that learning. So there's an institutional way to look what we did. That's really not so funky. For the student, I want them to have a different view of what the institution is because so many of our students come from past experiences with higher ed where they have been hurt, that have been traumatic, where they've made to feel they don't belong, or they're sitting in classes with folks who are 18-year-olds doing internships when they've been the ones who've been in the field for 20 years doing that work, um, where they've been uh, navigating financial trauma, where it's like uh, they owe 500 bucks or 300 bucks or 20 bucks and are told that they can't sign up for the next class until they pay that off and they can never pay it off and so they can never go back. Or they were told to go to the bursar's office on day one where they're signed up for classes and who really knows what a bursar is or where it is. And so you get confused, embarrassed, and you don't want to go then. So it's like for institutions that aren't set up to respond to and support students in those ways, we're there as a response to that. We're there. That's what the unbound is. It's it's res, it's recognizing that folks are bound, that institutions are bound, and you need something that feels looser and accommodating and personal. Yeah, I was um, talking with another colleague of mine who, uh, it's actually in a different episode um, by uh, Michael Yabro. He was talking about, you know, he. He grew up um, having, you know, attending a very prestigious undergraduate college, and and yet, you know, with his background, there was these what he called hidden curriculum. He doesn't know what people are talking about when they're talking about majors or syllabus, yes. you know. And 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 if you, you know, it, and for him, he describes it as it sounds like a foreign language that you've heard people say these things. But it's not me. I don't know what it really means, um, and and that puts you into a disadvantage that you know that is, um, you know that that really is necessary to be there. Um, you know, um, knowing uh, knowing what a syllabus is, um, I guess you know for me, you know, it feels like yeah, everyone knows this, but really it doesn't help most people's you know day to day life and their jobs unless you're a teacher and and so on. And so, you know, maybe it's really not that important uh, for them to understand, you know, how to be right. col- uh, the, the, the college, you know, um, uh, student. Uh, whereas, you know, all these other learning opportunities yeah. becomes more important. Um, now, I, I think that you are working with um, some, you know, in, aside from just adult learners, you are also working with some specific segments of our adult learners, too. You want to talk about that? Um. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the college is designed to grow organically, to meet needs as they happen. And mm-hmm. so we're not we're not building a big campus to invest in buildings that if we don't fill those buildings, then we're going to go out of business. I think about College Amount as an accordion that's going to grow and shrink in different places as that demand happens. So we always have uh, space for general any individual who's interested in going to college coming back to college to come in and work with us we also have affinity based cohorts that respond to needs insights and in moments where um to meet that demand so at the united way of rhode island when there was um, a number of folks who are employees of the united way who didn't have bachelor's degrees we built a bachelor's program for employees there that met in the conference room of the united way after work and then met online in times during COVID. You want to tell um, people what United Way is, so they they get an idea. 
Sure, there, there should be a United Way close to anyone who's watching this if they're stateside. Um, they are an amazing service-based organization, community connector, uh, and community funder. So there's folks who um, uh, establish funds at the United Way that help uh, support services. Uh, most United Ways in the country also have a 211 phone number that someone can call if they're trying to find services. Um, and really one of the uh, strongest community-based organizations that's pushing forward uh, a commitment to social justice in the world on a day-to-day practice. Um, so it, it was, of course, a perfect home for us thinking about a cohort. We right now are building uh, on top of a cohort of uh, teacher assistants in Rhode Island um, that we started this past year uh, partnering with the Equity Institute. Uh, an amazing, another an amazing uh, organization to really think about what it means to support TAs uh, in elementary and middle school classrooms uh, that are primarily uh, teachers of color that are looking to get a bachelor's degree and looking to get teacher certification and perhaps looking to go, then go on to a master's program. We uh, work to support and admit a founding cohort of 14 students this past fall. We've started to do open houses for this next year and over two open houses, over 150 folks have shown up. So when I talk about that according to demand, there's this like pent up demand of teacher assistants who are within the public school district that wanna get a bachelor's degree, that wanna have a bachelor's degree that reflects who they are, what they care about, and the questions that they're engaging with in daily practice. It doesn't mean one, two, three years down the line, we're always gonna have 150 people showing up at every open house. We hope to really work with that demand and make sure that we're working to support those folks towards a bachelor's degree and towards eventual teacher certification. But it is right now that's big demand for folks who who need that degree to move up in the world in the ways they're looking to do their work. Um, you know, I want College Inbound to be embedded in public libraries and community centers, in public housing community centers, um, and common rooms. So really think about where people are already gathering. So it's not the thing where you have to leave home to go to college, but that college is where you need it to be, and that it's the thing that recognizes the learning that happens through folks who are already in your network. Um, and that happens through affinity groups, that happens through place-based work, and COVID has really forced us to think about how that happens outside of place um, and how we need to curate different virtual spaces to bring people together. You know, what you just said painted such a vivid and imaginative vision for me to think about, like you were saying, in community spaces, libraries, um, housing projects, you know, etc. Because it it really, you know, feels like that for a lot of adults, look, you know, it's it's a huge amount of work to say, I'm already working two jobs, I might be a single parent, or maybe I have, you know, multiple children uh, that I have to, you know, you know, take care of. Maybe I have my families I'm taking care of as well. Maybe it's my parents. Um, I'm already working a couple jobs. I can't also pile on traveling to go to school somewhere on top of that. I can't even pile on online school if it's a traditional sort of like I have to take a class, I have to do homework, I have to... Uh, and I'm not saying that yours doesn't require homework. It's just that if it's integrated into their lives, into their work itself, it it, it just allows them to think of every moment that they are facing in their day-to-day lives, which is tough enough, by the way. And they are all amazing learning opportunities. 
right? And that's really sort of some of the things that you are able to to bring to them. And I think that's really amazing. So what do you think that... You you summarized it really well, Jeff. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, um, it's both that they are learn folks are learning in daily practice. So you need to recognize that and help honor that. And you need the school and any curriculum to be at the service of that. I talked about project-based learning as one of those high impact practices. I'm not asking a student to invent a project for the sake of a class and then that project's due in mid-December because the professor's got to turn in grades. Like that's how everyone understands project-based learning. Really, it's from the first moment, and in that Digication First Admissions Profile uh, portfolio from 2008, it was asking folks, what do you care about? What drives you? What makes you tick? What ticks you off? What are you connected to and what are you committed to? Then the school needs to be at service of that. So that if someone's thinking about, oh my God, right now I'm really overwhelmed with how do I support my kid who's doing COVID home learning? Okay, that's the work we got to do right now. And our classes are designed as eight-week intensives so that they can respond in real time to the questions you have. You may not know that you have that. Like in March, we switched over into the new term right when we did the COVID um, sort of like shutdown in uh, 2020. So that folks could do a pivot of classes like, oh, this is what I need to know now. This is the community I need to be a part of now to help me understand the world I'm in right now. That's what I mean by an urgency curriculum. It responds to the needs of the moment. This concludes part one of our conversation with Adam Bush from College Unbound. To hear part two, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Digication Scholars Conversations is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. This episode was produced by Drew Albanicius and Amanda Driscoll. Thanks for listening.